This is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Syraclad, featuring one-on-one interviews with designers, contractors, city managers, and civic leaders, as well as thought leaders committed to sustainability, innovation, and solutions that are attractive, affordable, and create healthy living environments. Our podcast illuminates the challenges, breakthroughs, and proven solutions brought to industries, organizations, and our communities. From the office and manufacturer of Syraclad in Redmond, Washington, and on location, this is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast. For our guest today, we're really honored and excited to welcome Jonathan Sweet. Jonathan has practiced law in the Bay Area for over 35 years and specializes in representing small businesses. Jonathan has taught various law classes at the University of San Francisco School of Law, Lincoln Law School of San Jose, and San Jose State University Continuing Education. He's also conducted numerous jury trials, bench trials, mediations, and arbitrations. Jonathan's specialties are general business litigation, construction, real estate, contract drafting, and review, and he's been a member of the California State Bar Association since 1986, as well as director of Peninsula Builders Exchange, San Francisco and Carlos, California, since 2002, and a member of the Legal Advisory Committee of the California Association of General Contractors from 1990 to 2009. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and his uh, Juris Doctorate degree from the University of San Francisco in 1985. For more information, feel free to visit the website of jonathansweetlaw.com. Again, that's jonathansweetlaw.com. Jonathan, hey, thank you for being here. We're really, uh, I'm always excited to talk with you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, you know, as we talked about in our virtual green room, um, we, we like to ask um, our honored guests if they have a quote or an axiom, and, and uh, yours was definitely unique. And, uh, and we talked about how people spend their time and money. Can you uh, go into that a bit with your, with your audience today and why that's so important and matters to you? Sure. I, I think that when I speak to somebody about a problem that has legal aspects to it in the construction area, what I find is that they've made a bad decision in the past. They've gotten into business with somebody who turned out to not be the best person. They've signed a contract with somebody that didn't work out well. And they're going to spend future time and money and energy um, trying to undo that bad decision. And so a large part of what I try and tell them is to consider that the point we're discussing the problem is like a ground zero. And to look at how they're going to spend their time and their energy and their money going forward in, in a way that is geared to get them to their goal. Um, rather than trying to undo a bad decision they made in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, it's a, a common thing that they're going to continue to invest time and money and energy trying to undo that rather than saying, what is my goal and what's the shortest distance to get there? It's interesting. Uh, was there, what point did you realize that that was where most people made these decisions that they kind of chased their tail, so to speak? Well, I think what happens is um, like, let's say, for example, a, uh, a contractor signs a bad contract with a general contractor, a subcontractor, and there are terms in the contract that are not favorable to the subcontractor, but they may not have read the entire contract or fully understood it, and then they're trying to undo that mistake by trying to either get into litigation or a claims process. And uh, so... 
So I kind of have like sort of 10 little rules that I sort of set up for people that I try to communicate, and I'll go through those quickly. Oh, yeah. So one is to choose carefully who you work with, whether it's a person on the other side of a contract or a partner, to set up and operate your business properly, to separate your assets, to obtain the right kind of insurance for your business, whatever your business is, to do the best you can to understand your contracts, um, to understand how the mechanics lien system works uh, in under the, the court system, to use the legal system carefully, to get legal help when or attorney help when that's necessary, to understand what the bankruptcy system does and does not do, and then number 10, because we're under the Dewey Decimal System here, not paying for past mistakes. And I think that those are kind of sort of guidelines I try and give people to operate. And so I'll go through those in a little more detail. So, for example, um, what are some of the ways to figure out who you're going to work with, like as a partner? And unfortunately, a lot of times I think people get into business with somebody because either it's a relative or it's a... Uh, somebody they went to school with or some other random method of selection rather than looking at who would be the best person for them to work with. So some of what I talk about is, you know, doing a little bit of internet research on people to see what they can find out, to get references or other people that the possible candidate has worked with, to speak directly to the potential partner about their background and their other businesses, and to have a written uh, agreement that controls the relationship between the two people. And, uh, you know, if it's a partnership, it's a partnership agreement. Uh, sometimes you have what's called a buy-sell agreement if it's a corporation. And sometimes you have what's called a key man insurance policy, which is actually a life insurance policy that a corporation takes out on a key person to uh, replace the loss if that person dies. So those are some of the things about, you know, how you get into business with somebody and also, one thing I didn't mention is, even though it's a little bit cumbersome, in California, you can look in court databases county by county to see what kinds of lawsuits the person that you may be working with might have been in in the past to give you an idea about whether they're getting into a lot of trouble with the court system. Wow. These are, these are so many factors that I, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would think the vast majority of people that enter into businesses don't consider? Is that your experience or am I guessing? Yeah. I mean, I think that they, they get into business sort of hoping it's all going to go well and uh, don't necessarily approach it in a, in a methodical way. Um, and, you know, and, and one of the things I also talk about is how to find and choose an attorney to work with. And so, you know, uh, construction is certainly a specialized area. And so if somebody is a, a contractor or an architect or an owner, um, or a design professional, um, that they should try and locate an attorney that has experience in construction. Um, one of the other factors to discuss with the attorney is how busy the attorney is, how many clients they have, and what your relative importance is to them as a client, what the attorney's hourly rate is, um, what kind of an advance against hourly the lawyer's going to need, uh, what a minimum billing increment is, which for most lawyers is a tenth of an hour, and uh, Although a lot of attorney work in the construction area is done on an hourly basis, um, generally, or sometimes attorneys which set up like a corporation may do it for a flat fee rather than on an hourly basis. I would think, I don't know if you've ever quantified as a professional or if the industry has a 
any quantification to the value of seeking legal counsel, at least at the onset of your business. Of course, ideally before you even begin, but at least within on the onset of your business, what, what's you're, you're sharing it, but can you share some of the advantages of doing that? And even it's kind of sounds like it, it could even be a profit center. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the, I mean, I'll give you a small example. Okay. I, many years ago, a woman contacted me about drafting a construction contract for her to build a house. And, uh, at that time, I gave her a number which she thought was high for the cost of drafting the contract. And I said, well, all you have to do is look at what the economic cost to you is going to be if things go badly or if you sign a bad contract. And one of the contractors said to me, ask how much she's paying for her sub-zero refrigerator as a way of looking at the value of a refrigerator compared to the value of the legal services. Wow. I would think you can use that in a lot of references as to the value, especially of professional services, which is, in my opinion, it's 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 an intangible, at least initially. It's an intangible. So to say, here's what the fee is or here's what your investment is, to protect yourself and to even prosper yourself is uh, <laughs> using the sub-zero example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the other things that when a business is starting is, you know, how you choose a name. You know, and obviously if you're just going to use your individual name, that's pretty simple. But sometimes people want to choose a name that is is catchy. I remember one time I saw a contractor, his name was Competent Builders. And I thought, okay, that's kind of a low bar there. I mean, that doesn't sound like you're really (laughs) communicating high quality. And then I think there was another one that said, best built, best prices, best builder. And I thought that was a little bit on the other side of the spectrum. But, um, you know, because what you don't want to have happen is you choose a common name and then there's confusion in the marketplace between your business and other businesses. Like at one time I saw a company called California Concrete. Well, there's probably like 30 California Concretes in California. So you want to choose a name that is not going to be confusing with other companies and you could get into trademark infringement issues and so on. And if you want to register your name as a trademark, there are processes through the Patent and Trademark Office to register a trademark. Yeah. In your experience, obviously you can you have a, a checklist, for lack of a better word, a checklist to go through with people. But is there a, a sort of sixth sense that you try to pick up on between prospective partners or, or vendors and suppliers of businesses? Yeah, I mean, I, I had somebody who came to me who wanted to set up a business, and he and the other owner, the other prospective owner, could not agree on who was going to be president and who was going to be vice president. And I thought, if you can't get past something that small, what is the likelihood that you can operate a business successfully? And one of the things I said to him, I said, well, you know, the president could make less money than the vice president if the issue is compensation. You know, you want to make more money than the other person. But, yeah, I mean, it, what what I sometimes call the honeymoon phase, when people are just setting up a business, if they have trouble agreeing on small stuff, that may be an indication that down the road they're going to have troubles. Yeah, that's an interesting gauge. Now, Jonathan, I've had the um, – I've been privileged to actually hear you on the phone when, when we've been out before, and you, I think you've talked to a client or two. But I noticed there's a, there's a delivery that you have that even though there's a lot of legal terms – but it's very conversational. 
it, is that just kind of how you're wired or it's built into your practice or, or well I, I think as a lawyer and you're dealing with legal concepts or the legal system or business issues it's important not to use buzzwords or terms of art which not everybody understands and so I try to use simpler terms although uh, I did a jury trial once where I used the word careless to refer to negligence and afterwards when I interviewed the jurors they said we were waiting to hear the word negligence and I said well I used the word careless because it's a more common word you know to mean the same thing but yeah I mean I think that um, in fact you know one of the things that I try and say to people is if I use a term you don't understand or it doesn't mean anything to you ask me to explain it or define it and uh, because when you deal with uh, short shorthand words a lot of times everybody understands you know like in construction when people talk about a mechanics lien or a preliminary notice the average person won't necessarily know what that means but in the construction trades people know what it's all about excellent you're listening to the architecture and innovation podcast by Syraclad we're talking today with Jonathan Sweet attorney at law for more information, feel free to go to his website at jonathansweetlaw.com. Again, that's jonathansweetlaw.com. Jonathan, with uh, during the pandemic, have you noticed, uh, obviously there's a lot of changes, but I'm curious from a legal perspective, the changes legally that have gone on with the construction and the built environment in the last, say, say 18 months? Well, I think some of the issues that have come up, a lot of them have to do with um, delays in the supply chain or the increase in costs in materials. And so one of the things that uh, a typical construction contract might have is what's called a force majeure clause or a clause that talks about what happens if there's a catastrophic event, fire, labor strike, things like that. And so people are more often now in their contracts putting in the words pandemic or you know mass uh, health issue um, and I even remember back to I think around 2004 when the cost of steel was going up because I think I was told that China was using a lot of steel to build infrastructure for the Olympics in uh, China and that the the cost of steel was going up like every week and so both supply and cost were problems and so you know, the, 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 say, a subcontractor who would bid and steel was one of the components of their um, contract is they would say, well, who bears the cost of the increase in the steel? Mm-hmm. And you would try and draft by contract to try and have some sort of a provision for that. You know what? This is my perspective and, and, and my, uh, my own experience is that legally, when I feel like talking with attorneys specifically in business, I actually feel a sense of comfort and I feel like a partnership, even if it's with a supplier or a vendor's own attorney. Maybe that's unique because I just always feel like there's a sense of rationale with everyone, at least now we're we're locked into, we're going we're gonna to resolve something or it's just to go over something. Is that your experience in uh, with dealing with many company owners that they do feel comfortable talking with? Or, well, I, I think that the part of what I try to bring to my representation of clients is to not get caught up in the sense of right and wrong and fairness and unfairness. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I had a client who built bid a big project and was in the flooring business, 
and I guess for some bizarre reason the external staircases in this building were to be carpeted. Now he didn't notice that when he reviewed the drawings and so for him to have to carpet all of the staircases, the external staircases, was going to be a huge increase in his cost. And so part of what I try to say to him is not act like maybe he was foolish for not catching that problem, but to take a functional approach. In fact, I think many years ago somebody told me that uh, Toyota as a corporation had a philosophy about when a problem would arise, instead of pointing fingers at who's responsible for the problem, take a constructive, forward-looking approach to say, how do, we, how do we solve the problem? Is that something that you think is innate in an individual, or do you think that's something that can be learned? Or do even, and this is like a three-part question, or is it something that you bring to your clients, that ability to, get, to look at it like, hey, we're looking to have a resolution and a benefit for everyone involved, not adversarial? Well, I remember I had a situation many years ago where an architect had was building a high-end home in Los Angeles, and the at some point he foolishly agreed not to charge any more money for work that he was doing on the project. And many, many changes and more work was asked for of the architect by the owner. And at some point when the architect said to the owner, look, I can't keep working for free. And the owner said, well, that's your problem. And the architect said, I said to the architect, I said, well, actually, if you go bankrupt and can't operate because you can't meet your overhead because he's not paying you, it becomes his problem because he's going to have to go out on the open market and find somebody else. Mm. So to recognize that the collaborative nature of construction often is that it's everybody's problem to try and solve. On that word, collaborative nature, all of, I think my opinion, all of business is a collaborative um, partnership, specifically in the built environment. How much so do you think, if that's true? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I was in a mediation trying to solve a big construction case. It was a hospital. And the general contractor, um, you know, was the when problems arose, the owner stopped paying the general, the general stopped paying the subs, and the, the work ground to a halt, and then there was a big claim about it by everybody. And so at a certain point, I asked the lawyer for the general contractor, do you think that your general contractor client has any responsibility for the problems here? And he said, not any that are not pass-throughs to the subs. Oh. And I said, well, I said, I think when there's a problem, everybody probably owns a piece of it. And in fact, uh, you know, there was a, uh, my father was a professor of law at UC Berkeley who wrote extensively in the construction area and he passed away recently. But one of his uh, perspectives was that he thought if possible, parties to construction should pre-allocate the cost for defect or delay at the beginning of the project in order to avoid all the fighting at the back end. He said he was never able to successfully sell this concept because everybody felt like they don't want to pay if they didn't do anything wrong. But, you know, there's a logic to it. And so, you know, I had a small subcontractor who got involved in uh, construction litigation involving a house. And he said what I think of as kind of an example, a perfect example. He said, I wouldn't mind paying money if I did anything wrong. And I said, the question isn't whether you did anything wrong. The question is going forward. If they're offering you a nominal sum of money to get out 
and be done, it is worth it for you to pay that money. The other thing I often try to explain to clients, and in fact, they'll sometimes say to me, I'd rather pay money to you, my lawyer, than pay money to the other side. And I say, well, I, I appreciate the sentiment that represents and shows that you like me. I said, but the third alternative is you'll pay me money and you'll pay the other side. And so more often what I've thought with construction disputes recently is the question isn't going to be whether you could actually win at trial or arbitration. The question is, will you resolve it early in the dispute process for a certain sum of money or spend a lot of time and energy engaged in the dispute process and then end up settling again down the road further? That the likelihood that your construction dispute will actually go to arbitration or trial is statistically small. Wow. This is awesome. You're listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast presented by Suraclad. We're talking today with our guest, Jonathan Sweet, attorney at law. For more information, feel free to visit his website at jonathansweetlaw.com. Again, jonathansweetlaw.com. Jonathan, if we go back a bit to this, um, it just seems like so much of this, so many perspective or eventual problems could be resolved at the beginning. And are you, do you work close enough with clients so that you can help them identify that oh, if, if this isn't resolved or you don't come to uh, an agreement with this or at least come to a, a, a better relationship that it's going to lead to a problem down the road is that part of your without lack, a lack of other word job to do is to kind of see them like hey let, let me let's guide you through this so that we can minimize any of our potential damages here well i think one of the sources of a lot of problems are change orders. And so I think that people understand that, first of all, ideally, you have the change order signed before you do the extra work. But a lot of times that's not done, which leads to problems. And the other is that a change order form should address not only the change to the price, but also the change to the schedule. And so I'll give you a simple example. I had a homeowner building a high-end home I was representing the contractor. They, they had framed the house, and when she saw the master bathroom, she said, it looks too small. And I said, okay, let me understand what you're saying. Is it that it's not built according to the plans and specs, or that now that you see the plans and specs represented in, in final form, that it just looks too small? And she said, yeah, it's the second. And I said, okay, well, when you wanted to add eight feet, to the bathroom, did you understand that that would change the price? And she said, yeah. I said, did you understand that it would change the schedule? And she said, no, it shouldn't change the schedule. And I said, well, why would that be? If they have to rip out the framing and redo it, don't you think that would cause delay? And she said, well, the bathroom wasn't on the critical path. And I said, uh, did some construction scheduling person tell you that? And she said, no. I said, what is your understanding of what the critical path is? And she said, well, it's a scheduling tool that says that if certain tasks are delayed, other tasks will stack up behind them, but that other tasks are kind of more on the side. And so she actually had a basic understanding, which is what, as a non-construction person, I generally understand about what critical path method means. But, you know, it was just sort of amazing to me that she thought this shouldn't affect the schedule. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think um, making sure that people get signed change orders before they do the work. And I think the technology exists now. You know, even if you're dealing with somebody far away, you email them the change order and they sign the change order electronically and get you back the change order. And so it just helps with the argument down the road that they didn't think they should have to pay for that when you say you signed the change order and you knew what the upcharge would be for the change order. Yeah, excellent. Jonathan, you've also uh, authored, is it several books? Yeah, I have a book okay. that I did uh, that is for non-lawyers um, that's called Avoiding or Minimizing Construction Litigation. It's published by John Wiley and Sons. Um, it's available on the internet. Um, the other book is uh, on AIA documents, the American Institute of Architect documents, um, and that's about a 1,500-page book about um, the forms, the contract forms that the AIA puts out, and other commentary about contract language. Wow. What was your inspiration for, the, for both of those books? Well, my father wrote a textbook about construction law, which is intended to be a, a teaching tool. Um, and then he had started the AIA book back in 1987 when the AIA had put out, they're on sort of a 10-year cycle that they put out new documents. And so he did some seminars and then this book grew out of the seminars that he did back before 1987. And then as he transitioned out of active work, I took over the, uh, the AIA book. And so it's published these days, it's Walters Kluwer that publishes the book. Yeah. Jonathan, what, um, what would you like to talk to your audience about today that we haven't touched on? Um, I think the, um, I know that when I would go to architect meetings for the local AIA chapter in the last 10 years or so, a lot of what they talked about was building information modeling to detect design clashes early on in the process and locating all of the major trades in, uh, ready communication with each other. And 10 or 15 years ago, that actually meant actually having a representative from each of the trades physically be in the same space working as the other trades. Um, because I think a lot of the problems are communication problems. In other words, that somebody makes an assumption about uh, something being part of the original scope or not, uh, and that results in a, in a misunderstanding about those items. And so I think communication is a pretty key issue. Um, you know, as part of that, I talk about on a project, regular construction meetings or dialogue, or these days it might be Zoom to, you know, maybe you have a check-in time at say seven o'clock on Monday. We say, what are the issues we have going forward this week? What, are we on schedule? Um, do we have delays? What, what are we doing this week? So that everybody has an understanding. The other thing is that I think that sometimes on larger or smaller projects, the owner doesn't want the architect speaking directly with the contractors. Hmm. And I'm not sure exactly what suspicion that is, whether they think that they're going to gang up on the owner for to overcharge them. But part of what I try and say is, you know, have everybody be in communication to understand how things are going. And so, you know, when I talk to an owner about a construction contract, some of the things I talk about as key issues are having liquidated damages for delay, having an attorney's fees clause, uh, possibly, having change order forms, um, and having some sort of uh, milestones. And because what you don't want to have happen is the performing party have a big receivable at the end of the project and then have to chase that, or the owner 
doesn't want to have a big upcharge at the end that they didn't expect was coming. And those are the kinds of things that result in arbitration or litigation. Um, the other thing is to suggest to people that mediation is an important tool to resolve disputes. Mediation is a tool. And share with it why that's, that's if not vital, or important. Because, because mediation is a uh, fluid process in which the parties meet with a mediator and then separately confer with the mediator to discuss their positions. And so the mediator is free to look at a lot of pieces of information that a judge or an arbitrator would not. And just because a lot of people hear the words mediation and arbitration and think they're synonyms, mediation is an assisted negotiation with a third party neutral. Arbitration is a private trial. In arbitration, you put on evidence, the arbitrator makes a decision, and the parties are bound by the decision. Whereas in mediation, the parties are trying to negotiate to a, a compromise solution. Excellent. Well, Jonathan, it's been a real honor and pleasure having you uh, on your show today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Our guest today has been Jonathan Sweet. Jonathan's practiced law for over 35 years and specializes in representing small businesses. Jonathan's also taught various law classes at the University of San Francisco School of Law, Lincoln Law School, and San Jose State University Continuing Education. And he's conducted numerous jury trials, bench trials, mediations, and arbitrations. Jonathan's specialties are general business litigation, construction, real estate, contract drafting, and review. He's been a member of the California State Bar Association since 1986, as well as director of Peninsula Builders Exchange, Santa Carlos, California, since 2002, and a member of the Legal Advisory Committee of the California Association of General Contractors from 1990 to 2009. For more information, feel free to visit his website at jonathansweetlaw.com. You've been listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Syriclad. The uh, podcast is recorded from the office of Syriclad in Redmond, Washington, and on location. The executive producer and host of the Architecture and Innovation Podcast is yours truly, Tom Dior. Thank you for listening.